All right, so I'm not going to sing for you, but I'm going to wear my cardigan, even though it's not zip up. I don't have one of those. And I'm not going to change my shoes in front of you. I've already got blue tennis shoes on, so that's what, that's what I wear all the time anyway. How many of you... Uh, how many of you have fond memories of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood at all? Okay, awesome, cool. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things I enjoyed as a kid. I remember fondly, even with the creepy puppets and the voices, the low budget, you know, slow pace, sometimes seems painfully slow. Mr. Rogers, he was just, he connected with kids in a fairly unique way. And what you just saw there was actually a, a part of the trailer for a documentary that came out recently called Won't You Be My Neighbor? It's about Fred Rogers and how the show got its start and what, was, what it was all about. And I, I just want to say over the next three weeks as we, you know, are in the series Won't You Be My Neighbor, I would just recommend the documentary to you as something worth checking out. I will say that comes with a caveat that it's not necessarily something that I would sit down and watch with your young children. Uh, there are a couple of scenes in there, uh, a couple words that, that maybe you don't want to share with them just, just yet, uh, but it really gets into the real life story of how you know the Fred Rogers that you saw on TV was the Fred Rogers that existed in real life. Uh, and so it's a pretty amazing story and look at his life. Mr. Rogers, I, I didn't know this until I watched the documentary, but he studied child development. And it was something that he cared for, and he was ordained specifically for TV ministry, which is kind of interesting. When you think of TV evangelists, you probably don't think of Mr. Rogers as being one of those. You probably think of some other things uh, that would come to mind for that. But Mr. Rogers was very much concerned with, the, with how children and their social development, how they might experience the type of love that God invites us to experience with him and share with others. And so one of the statements that he made in that trailer, I, I just want to repeat because it's something that I think is very foundational for how he approached this ministry that he felt he was called to. And he says this, <clears throat> love is at the root of everything, all learning, all relationships, love or the lack of it. And for him, obviously that meant the love that God shares with us. And that's at the root of everything in our lives. So he created Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and he created it in the context of a neighborhood because at least at one point in our culture experience, you know, a neighborhood was something that we looked at as kids, we played in, that's where our friends were, we rode bikes through that. It was a safe place. It was a community that you belonged to. Once you got into it, you kind of knew where you were and who the people were around you. And, and I would say there's been a little bit of shift away from that, culturally speaking, um, you know, we've kind of gone from the front porch thing to more of the six-foot-tall privacy fence backyard thing uh, where we probably don't know as much about our neighbors as we used to. And, and maybe you don't even necessarily mourn that change because our lifestyles are different. We're a little bit more busy, or we act like it anyway. Like we're a little bit more important. We have more things going on and more things to do. And so we don't have time for getting to know the people who live around us. It might not even cross our minds. There's some exceptions to that, of course, um, that, that happen every once in a while. We had this random thing happen. We, we live out in the country, and so we're not very close to the people who live next to us. There's quite a bit of distance in, in a lot of trees, actually, you know, that, that we can't even really see their house very, very well. And we were out one afternoon, and this was kind of a random thing. We were playing basketball, and we had a neighbor who uh, they had some friends visiting with them for the weekend, and they heard the basketball, and so they came over to hang out. 
It's like, all right, that, that's kind of kind of interesting. Doesn't really happen that often. And then uh, another thing that's kind of cool about living out in the country, you know, people kind of look out for each other every once in a while. And so we've had some big snows over the last couple of years. We've had a couple of different neighbors come over and scrape our driveway, which is which is pretty neat. But a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had an experience with a neighbor that I think is a little bit more indicative of how things kind of are today. We had a gentleman drive up in our driveway, which is weird anyway. It's like, why? Why are people visiting us? Like, we, you know, this is this is strange. And so he comes comes up the driveway and he gets out. It's an older gentleman, uh, and he has a clipboard. I'm like, that's why we don't have a front porch because we don't want to take surveys. You know, it's like no solicitation, get off my property. Um, so he, he comes up and it was it was actually better. It wasn't a survey. He wanted us to sign a petition. Um, better, like I don't think that's better. But but anyway, he wanted us to sign a petition, and it was because he lives a mile down the road. He wanted the county that we live in to explore instituting a noise ordinance, which I thought was, was kind of interesting. He was having a problem with his next-door neighbors because they were keeping up, him up at night. So I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, way to meet this guy and that instead of him talking to his neighbors, you know, which weren't us, by the way. You know, we weren't the ones causing the problem, you know, about what was going on. He's trying to get, um, you know, ordinance passed in the, in the whole county. And we were talking, and he said, he kind of lamented the fact, he said, hey, I'm sorry, this is how we're meeting. Um, he said it used to be, because he lived there for a long time, he said it used to be that when people moved into the neighborhood, people who lived in the area would come over and say, hey, bring you a pie or something like that. And I thought, pie would be amazing, <laughs> but you brought me a clipboard. Um, and, and he said, but it, it got to the point where, you know, not so long ago, you, you would do that, and people didn't want you to show up on their doorstep with a pie. And I thought that was crazy because everybody loves pie, or should. Um, but, but he said, you know, things changed, and the word got out very quickly that when people came into the neighborhood, they didn't want to be greeted anymore. They wanted to be left alone. And so it's kind of interesting how, you know, we've gotten to the point where many of us probably know our neighbors better by what cars in their driveway and what they do that annoys us rather than knowing their names and, and maybe what they do for a living. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at some of the teachings and actions of Jesus that call us to a different way of interacting with the people that surround us and what it looks like to take God's commands to love literally. So we're going to be looking in Luke, looking in Luke chapter 10 today, which contains in one section perhaps the most famous teaching of Jesus uh, that most people are probably familiar with. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, but before we look at that specifically, we're going to look at the catalyst for why Jesus teaches this parable to begin with. And it all starts with a question that an expert in the law was coming to try to trap Jesus with. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Luke records this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's kind of an interesting interaction here with Jesus where this guy wanted to see if Jesus would give a wrong answer so he could get him in trouble. Uh, this also takes place in Mark chapter 12 where Mark records the same similar conversation that Jesus has with 
uh, an expert in the law who wants to see what he thinks is the best thing that is taught in, God, in God's law in the Old Testament. And so you might think, you know, hey, what is the greatest commandment? What's the, what's the most important thing that God teaches in, in the Old Testament? Well, it's got to be like one of the Ten Commandments or one of the purity laws or something that keeps you righteous. And Jesus repeats something um, that had at that point been seen as the cornerstone, the foundation of faith and belief and practice for, uh, for the Israelites. And he says, in, he repeats from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5, which is the Shema Yisrael. This is the section where um, that morning prayers and evening prayers start with this. Again, the foundation of all belief and practice. That here, O Israel, the Lord our God is, one, is God, the Lord is one. And so love the Lord your God with everything. That's, that's what that means. With your heart, soul, strength, and mind, it means love God with everything you have. And then the second part, he says, is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is, sums up all the law and the prophets. So everything about what it means to love God with everything and love other people, this is, this is, what, this is the sum of, of that teaching. And so Jesus recognizes and affirms for this expert in the law that, yeah, this is, this is the way to eternal life. Loving God with everything and the way to make the fruit of loving God evident in your lives is by loving others. While ritual has its place, how you live out your faith in real life is what matters. The fun part of this verse, and this, this is where I enjoy, like Jesus has a sense of humor, and you know this by little things like this, a little bit of sarcasm, a little dig on this guy, is verse 28 because of the implication of what Jesus says. Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. In other words, he's saying, yeah, you got the right answer, but it's not going to do you any good if you don't start living this way. Which is why this guy responds, well, who do you say is my neighbor? Because he wanted to justify himself. He wanted Jesus to have the same definition of neighbor that he has, which would have been anybody who I deem worthy of being my neighbor, that's who I'm supposed to love. And so, therefore, I'm doing great. I'm living my faith out exactly as I was supposed to. So that's why Jesus, in this response to the question, who is my neighbor, teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'll read it for us. Luke 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, Jesus asked the expert, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. If you, were, you and I were there as Jesus is telling the story, there are some things that would go through our minds naturally as an audience that's familiar with the context in which Jesus teaches this parable. The 17 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho were incredibly dangerous. They had a nickname. It was called the Pass of Blood because throughout this territory, uh, there was desert area. There were caves. There were places that robbers, bandits, liked to hang out to uh, attack people on their way. 
And so you might be looking at this and think, man, what was this guy thinking traveling between this, you know, the, the, to Jer- Jericho by himself? He kind of made a terrible decision, put himself in the wrong situation. It's kind of his fault. You know, he got, he got hurt, this kind of thing. And the priests and Levites, you know, you could, you could see why they, they might do some things. This is kind of a strange parable, maybe, if you're listening to it. And we might be a little bit more concerned about some of the details that Jesus obviously doesn't care about. For example... Jesus doesn't focus on the wrong the robbers do, but on the right that the priest and the Levite don't do. That's what he's concerned with. The implications are clear here. Jesus is concerned with the hypocrisy that sometimes we live out when we know the good that we ought to do, but we choose not to do it. This priest and this Levite that come across this dying man seems like there's no one, like none of us would respond that way, right? Like, none of us, if somebody was in a fight, would pull out our cell phones and just record it instead of stepping in to help or break it up. That doesn't happen, so Jesus is just using this crazy example. So, of course, this priest and Levite, I mean, these are religious people. They would stop and help this man, wouldn't they? Isn't this kind of a story from absurdity? Unless, you know, you think about it, that path, I mean, it's pretty dangerous, and who knows if the robbers might come back. And so, you know, the priest and Levite have to consider that because they've got a really important job. Maybe they're going to, to the temple. I mean, they've got to spend their time making sure people are able to get their sacrifices in before God, making sure the temple is well taken care of to do their duty. And so maybe, you know, they've, they've, got, to, they've got to be on time, and so they don't have time necessarily to deal with. And who knows, maybe this guy deserved it. He put himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. So maybe that's why they would pass by. Or maybe they're on their way home. And they're carrying food. And, you know, if they touch this guy and he's dying or something, that's going to make them unclean. That's going to make their food unclean. And then their family wouldn't get to eat. And all the work that they put time and effort into, they wouldn't, you know, it would amount to nothing. And so they would maybe go along and pass by him. You can see where the excuses come in. And it may seem like an extreme example, but we come up with them pretty easily. And the point-making from Jesus doesn't stop here. It's not just about the excuses that we use. He also makes a point by the hero being a Samaritan. Because Samaritans were not respected. They were half-breeds. They were people who were considered to be unclean, that weren't worth your time. In fact, this was the type of person that you would cross to the other side of the street on and would not walk past and would not acknowledge and move on. And yet, this is the hero of the story. And this is the one who stops and helps the man that these other two people should have stopped to help. And this is the one, the Samaritan, who helps at great personal cost and takes time out of his schedule. And not because he's concerned about getting attention, but he's concerned that this half-dead person gets the right care that they need. So when Jesus asked this man, this expert in law, who is the neighbor, this man couldn't even bring himself to say, well, it's the Samaritan because of his prejudice. But he was forced to recognize by his actions that he was the one who was truly this hurt person's neighbor in the parable. So Jesus looks at him and he says, go and do likewise. And so the question for this expert in the law, the question for us as followers of Jesus, you know, comes to this. What does it look like to take the greatest commandment literally? What does it look like not to just in theory say, well, we're supposed to love everyone, but to actually take time and resources out of our life to actually share in action 
the love of Jesus with other people. And so essentially we're going to be looking at that over the next couple weeks. But the first thing that I just want to kind of identify for us this morning is that what it looks like is it looks like taking some of the time, resource, and investment that we've reserved from ourselves for ourselves and using it for other people. I mean, when Jesus says this, this is not the whole love your neighbor thing. It's not a flippant thing, and this is representative of our love for God, and it, that it, it's not easy because some of the people and the time and the situations that we find ourselves in where we're called to love our neighbor are things that are not convenient for us. It wasn't the Samaritan was just as, he wasn't just as busy as the priest and Levite. It was that he took the focus off of himself and gave it to someone in that situation who needed it more. Mark Moore, a theologian, writes this. He says, in this story, we encounter three philosophies of life. The thieves selfishly say, what's yours is mine. These clergymen, with dreadful justification, say, what's mine is mine. And the Samaritan surprisingly says, what's mine is yours. And the Samaritan alone is the one Jesus says is worthy of eternal life. So I want you to just look at the person next to you and say, what's, what's mine is yours. I'm, I'm just kidding. You don't, you don't have to do that. First service, like, didn't even attempt. Like, they didn't, uh, they're still asleep, too, but uh, that's all right. Seriously, though, Jesus, Jesus isn't saying, look at the person next to you and, and say it. He's saying, look at the person next to you and show it. Go and do likewise, not go and say likewise. Go and do likewise. It's not easy because it requires a shift in our hearts and minds, a shift in priorities and perspectives and how we view people who come alongside of us in our path or maybe who we stumble across in our path uh, that includes people in situations we wouldn't naturally include. Even Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he, he lays down the hammer and says, love your enemies as something that makes us stand out from everyone else around us as followers of Christ. And so loving our neighbor, it's, it's not an easy thing that Jesus has asked us to do because my neighbor's a Democrat. <sighs> my neighbor's a Republican. <sighs> my neighbor's pro-life. My neighbor's pro-choice. An atheist, an evangelical. My neighbor's a man. My neighbor's a woman. My neighbor's a vegan. A hunter, a white collar, blue collar, a thug, a redneck. My neighbor loves sports. My neighbor would rather read poetry. My neighbor's a legal immigrant, and my neighbor's an illegal immigrant. My neighbor teaches English, and my neighbor doesn't know English. My neighbor is privileged, and my neighbor is marginalized. My neighbor is wealthy. And my neighbor is poor. My neighbor, sometimes, maybe even often, is the person I don't want to be my neighbor. Yet I'm called the, to be the person that they can trust to be theirs. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus teaches that when he comes into his glory, people are going to be separated into two categories. On the right hand are going to be people he calls sheep, on the left are going to be people he calls goats. And the separation will be based on how people cared for Jesus this side of heaven. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but like Jesus isn't here with us right now physically. So how in the world could we be expected to care for him literally? And yet this is what Jesus says. 
Matthew chapter 25, verse 37. He says, the righteous will answer him, Lord, what, this is great. Like, we're, we're glad we're with the sheep. This is, this is amazing. But when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The text continues, and Jesus talks to the goats, and they wonder the same thing. And he points out that, hey, whatever you did or didn't do for the least of these, this is how you've treated me. And that's why loving my neighbor as myself is not easy, because when Jesus looks at our neighbor, he sees our neighbor as being our friends, being the marginalized, and even our enemies. It includes the people that are tough to make the effort for, and maybe in particular the people we look for a loophole in not having to care for. Because this is exactly what the expert in the law was trying to do when he asked Jesus who my neighbor is, because he wanted Jesus to affirm that he only had to care about the people that he wanted to care about. Now, this is where the message could stop, and we could be done, and we could pray, with the idea being that everyone is our neighbor, so let's think of them that way, and that kind of gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling. But here's where things get really down to brass tacks. While it's true that everyone is our neighbor, it doesn't mean that we don't take the great, great commandment literally for anyone. In other words, this is not a theory, this is not simply a belief that we have, but it's an action we're called to take. And The Art of Neighboring, which is a book I would recommend for you to check out, uh, it takes a practical approach to living out this teaching of Jesus with our actual real-life neighbors, with real people. Jay Pathak writes this. He says, if we aren't careful, we can take the most important teaching of Jesus and turn it into a catchy saying that we don't live out. And in doing so, we become immune to its impact on our lives and the lives of others. We miss out on the life that Jesus has come to give us. So the kingdom of God life that Jesus invites us into and teaches us to live out with him includes the lives of those that surround us. And so we each have a literal opportunity to live out the love of Jesus with not just the people in this room, but the people who surround our homes, the people who surround us in our cubicles, people who surround us at our job sites, and our hobbies, whatever it may be. What's easy to do is to kind of keep our heads down and cross the other side of the road when we stumble across someone that we just see as an obstacle to the path that we want for our lives. What's right in the way that we show our love for God is by keeping our heads up and our eyes open, ready to see, really see people for who they are, that they matter because they're made in the image of God, that they have real names, that they have real hopes and dreams, that they have real concerns, things that we're called to be a part of in their life. And listen, I get like we might not be able to do this for everyone that we've ever come across in our lives, but there is someone in your life that you can do that for right now. There's somebody that is in your path that you have the choice of whether or not to cross the street and walk along on the other side or to keep your head up and eyes open to how you can be a neighbor to them. One of the things... And, and this may sound silly, but one of the things long, uh, quite a while ago that I challenged myself to do is that when I walk past people on the street um, or sidewalk or something like that, I do my best to try. I don't do it every time because I'm not perfect, but I try to do my best to make eye contact with that person. Which I get it. Like, that sounds creepy. Um, 
I'd much rather just ignore people and go along about my business than trying to make this awkward eye contact, this social interaction, like, what are you supposed to do now? And so I just try to maybe smile at them or nod my head. And it's kind of funny, most people are wearing headphones, so you're not going to have to talk to them or anything, you know, actually get to know them. You know, but one of the things I found is that you know, people respond to that. There's, there's something valuable to simply recognizing another person, even if it's a stranger, that they're a real human being <laughs> and that they exist. And sometimes it takes them a second to realize, oh, like, why are you smiling at me? Are you some weird person? But uh, oftentimes you get a smile back or, or a nod back from that person. There are small things that we can do that change our thought processes and how we view other people that will lead to an opportunity for a much larger impact in their lives. One last quote from Mr. Rogers. But here's what he suggests as a solution to much of the world problems. He says, imagine what our real neighborhoods would be like if each of us offered, as a matter of course, just one kind word to another person. There have been so many stories about the lack of courtesy, the impatience of today's world, road rage, and even restaurant rage. I don't know, stabbing people with a fork or something? I don't, I'm not sure what that is. Sometimes all it takes is one kind word to nourish another person. And think of the ripple effect that can be created when we nourish someone. One kind, empathetic word has a wonderful way of turning into many. The challenge from Jesus is to go and do likewise. It's to keep our heads up, ready to use the same type of love and attention that we give to our own lives to extend to the lives of others. Loving your neighbor is acting out the compassion and kindness of Jesus for those in your path and for those that you find in your world. Regardless of how desirable they might be to you at that time. My hope and prayer for this church and this congregation is that we would keep our heads up, heads up and our eyes open and our hands ready and willing to show this kind of love and invite people in to be our neighbors. It's how we go about our mission of helping people find Jesus and love God. It's how we live out the greatest command, literally. And it's how Jesus, quite frankly, changed the world. Because as much as we don't deserve to be his neighbors, he invites us in because we have value as children of God. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about and dive into even more practically what that looks like. But um, I, I just want to challenge you maybe this week and maybe even as you leave uh, the church today that may, maybe just try to make eye contact with people a little bit more. Maybe just look for ways uh, to see people less as obstacles but more as opportunities to invite them to be uh, your neighbor just like Jesus has done for us. So right now, let's, uh, let's take communion together just like we do every week um, and be reminded of the fact that even though we didn't deserve it, uh, Jesus comes and allows us to be redeemed uh, and to live with God because he loves us. And uh, let's, let's pray together as we prepare for that time. God, thank you for inviting us in, uh, for calling us your children and giving us the opportunity to share that same love with others. And we ask that you give us the wisdom that we need through the Holy Spirit to see the people that you place in our life uh, to invite in as, as our neighbors, uh, to love them as you've loved us. And we ask that uh, we are able to uh, live this out through your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.